Heavenly Father, thank you for blessing us with this wonderful, miraculous day, giving us the freedom to gather together of like mind and spirit, praising you, worshiping you, growing in your word, Lord. Please peel the scales off of each of our eyes, unstop our ears, and unlock our hearts so that we can absorb and, and just take in each and every word that is spoken today for your glory, Lord. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the forgiveness his death and resurrection brings us. Lord, thank you for loving us when we are so unworthy. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you do. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Robin, for opening us in a word of prayer and for preparing our hearts for the truth. We will accept that and jump into our time in the Word today. Uh, we're going to be looking today, as you may have guessed from our catechism question reading, at the sacraments or ordinances of the New Testament church. And the question that our, was asked in our catechism is, what are they? What are the sacraments or ordinances? Uh, and over the course of the next two Sundays, we're going to look at each of the ordinances that we listed individually. But today we're going with more of a kind of a 30,000 foot view, right? This is the overview of, in general, what do we mean by ordinances? What is an ordinance? What do we, why do we have them? What are they here for? So, so we're going to start off just with a simple working definition of an ordinance. So for this morning, an ordinance is a ceremony instituted by God for the church to observe. And as we noted in our confession this morning, we baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two ordinances. Now, there are a lot of other things that the church is commanded to do, right? If we go with, with Wayne Grudem's systematic theology text, which is where a lot of this is coming from, for you, you gentlemen that have worked through it, uh, right? There's, we are commanded to teach the word. As a church, that's something we should do. We're commanded to pray for each other, to worship. When there's sin in the body, we're shown how to do church discipline. We're commanded to give. We're commanded to use our spiritual gifts, fellowship, evangelism, ministering to each other's needs, spiritual, right, and comfort, and also physical provision. All of these things the church is commanded to do. But we're looking at ordinances, and an ordinance is a specific ceremony with a spiritual meaning that is conducted within the church. For us, that's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, you uh, you may have noticed that the catechism question said sacraments or ordinances, and I'm using ordinances all the time. So 
the, the catechism question was, of course, written for a much broader audience than just a single church or even a single denomination. And in fact, there are uh, denominations like the Lutherans or the Anglicans who would refer to baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments, and they would teach very similar things to what we teach about them. Uh, but the term sacraments is also used by the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church actually has seven. They would include um, penance and confirmation and last rites, as well as ordination and marriage as sacraments. And, uh, and they, they teach different things about them than what we believe. They would, they would teach that they have a, a spiritual power that's independent of the faith of the people who are part of them. And that's, that, that's not what we see from Scripture. So we, I call them ordinances just to kind of distinguish and separate a little bit from some people who call them sacraments and teach something different than we do. Neither of those two words appear in the New Testament. Okay, So it's like Trinity, right? The concept is there. It's definitely taught. But we call it something so that we can teach about it. So you can call it whatever you want to call it. All I'm concerned with this morning is what the word teaches about it. Are we good there? I'm going to call them ordinances. So why is it important? Why is it important that we understand these two ordinances? Well, the, there's a couple reasons. Um, and one of them actually doesn't apply as much to us because we're not Jews in the early church, right? So we... We live our whole redemptive lives on this side of the resurrection. But there were people, particularly in the New Testament church, who lived through that transition. And there were some things that changed. And so it was pretty important for them to understand what it was that God was doing. It's not as big of a hang up for us because we don't have these Old Testament traditions that we're holding to. But, but in the same way, having lived only on one side of redemption, I think we kind of miss the bigger picture of God's redemptive story. So, so it's good for us to address this, even though it might not be our hang-up, because, because it gives us that big picture of his redemptive story that we're living in. So here's the first reason why we need to understand ordinances. Number one, when Jesus Christ came, the way that God's people follow him changed. So we're going to go all the way back, way back, not all the way back. We're going to go part way back. God brought, God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt through Moses. And when he brought them out, he gave them his law. And that law involved some moral laws. Don't bear false testimony against your neighbor. Good, good. Nothing. All right. It also brought some ceremonial laws. There were certain festivals that they were to observe. There were certain animals that they were to eat and to not eat or things that they should do or not do that would make them clean or unclean with regard to how they worshipped. So there was a set of ceremonial laws that set them apart from the nations around them. He also gave them sacrificial laws. We had guilt offerings, regular sacrifices. There was a whole system of temple sacrifice that God gave them. So there's a big set of laws you can read through in the Old Testament. They're there. All of those laws had reasons behind them. God used them to help Israel understand the nature of who he was and of who they were and of his holiness and of their sinfulness and of not only their need of redemption, but their hope for redemption, right? You had the year of Jubilee was pointing towards this, this forgiveness and freedom that was going to come. He wanted his people to get it. And he gave them these laws to help them follow him. Well, they're pointing forward to what Jesus is one day going to ultimately do. So when Jesus comes, he was the fulfillment of many of those laws. That when the Holy Spirit indwelled God's people, 
he instituted a, a new covenant, a new way that his people were going to follow him. Now, God's perfect law did not change, right? The heart condition of faithfulness and humility that he wanted from his people that he was trying to produce the whole time, that hasn't changed. It's no different. But the ceremonial law and the sacrificial laws, yeah, those changed a lot because we're not looking forward to or anticipating a sacrifice for sins anymore. Why not? Because it happened, right? I mean, it shouldn't surprise us. When God incarnates himself and does an amazing redemptive act that he's been prophesying about, things are going to change. This is new. This is awesome. This is exactly what God wanted them to get. And you can see where it would have been really easy for his people to have missed it if there was no system of sacrifices, right? If God never institutes in them this place in their mind where they can see their sin and a sacrifice needs to cover it, when Jesus comes along, they're not very likely to get it, right? But he wanted them to. He loved them, and he gave them these things leading up to what he planned to do. And then he did it. And now there's something new. We're no longer living under the old covenant. We have the Spirit of God, and we have the new covenant from Jeremiah that was promised to us. Now, the early church, of course, wrestled with this, right? They had learned take God's law seriously, and rightly so, right? It was a very important thing that he was doing. And now, God was teaching them the heart of that law and how he wanted his church to follow. And I want to show you where we see this in Scripture, okay? So turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 7. Yeah, we got that one open. Verse 14. This is a longer one, so we're going to open it up. So this is Jesus, and he's been working with the Pharisees and talking to them about kind of their hang-ups on washing and clean and unclean things. And then he turns to the crowd in Mark chapter 7. And in verse 14, it says this. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So he's certainly not setting apart God's moral law. He is emphasizing the need for us in our hearts to be holy as God is holy. But he's explaining to them that, that God has always been after our hearts. That was his complaint with the Israelites way back when as well, that they would you follow me with your words or with your laws, but your hearts are far from me. That it's, it's just this keeping of teachings taught by men. And what he's always been after is our hearts. So it, it wasn't clean or unclean going in. It's clean or unclean coming out that he's concerned with. And God continues to teach this to Peter after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. Peter's ministering and spreading the gospel in the, in the early church. And, and he, God wants to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But he understands that's going to be a big step for Peter because 
they're separate from people, right? That was a big deal. If you start walking in and hanging out with those nations, their idols are going to come in, and we have to stay separate. So, so when he wants Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to go and stay in a Gentile house and bring his word to them, he, he gives them the grace of a vision. And he lowers a sheet down to him with animals on it, all kinds of animals, and he says, kill and eat. Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says to him, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And he shows him that I'm, I'm doing something new here, and I want you to be a part of it. This is what it's going to look like when my good news now goes to all nations. And Peter follows, and he obeys, and the good news comes to the Gentiles. Well, you can imagine you have the Jewish believers, the Gentile believers coming together, right? There's, there's going to be an, a need to reconcile how we do things, right? You're telling me about this Jesus, but you're also telling me about this other stuff, and what is it, what is it that matters? And the people who are telling you what matters don't agree on what matters, right? So they're, they had some issues. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. In, in Acts 15, Paul has uh, been carrying the message now to the Gentiles. He's the apostle that God gave to do that, and uh, he's taken the news to the believers in Antioch, and the Gentiles have believed. Uh, but then they run into some trouble in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, uh, 1097 in your pew Bibles. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and the elders about this question. It was that big a deal. It wasn't just a, Paul's going to tell you and we're going to roll on. There was a, a, we really need to reconcile with the council at Jerusalem, the rest of the apostles. And so Paul and Barnabas go and they tell people all the way down the great news about what God has been doing among the Gentiles. And then in verse 5, they get to Jerusalem, and opposition continues. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And the council went on and James affirmed it and they were able to send a message back to the people that, that yes, indeed, God is doing something new among us. That there's a cleansing among us that is happening by faith and by his Holy Spirit and it's no longer the ceremonial law that make us his people and it was awesome right they and they all lived happily ever no they all thought about it quite a bit right but god was faithful to them and they were faithful and persisting and they continued to know and to grow and to teach listen to what uh paul says in romans chapter 7 we'll put this one up 
in Romans chapter 7, he says it this way. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And the beauty of the new way of the spirit is that we get even closer to God's holiness. What the law couldn't do in us, the Holy Spirit now empowers us to do. That we have been released from the law so that by the spirit we can bear fruit for God in a way that we couldn't when all we had was the law to guide us. Now we have his spirit. So again, we don't have the ceremonial bent that they did, right? Back then, boy, we really need to keep this stuff. But it's important for us to understand that while there was a lot of that ceremonial and sacrificial law that Jesus fulfilled, there were ceremonies or ordinances that were instilled or instituted by Jesus as well. There was, there was something that passed away, but there was also something that was given. So we've looked at what passed away. We're going to turn now and look at what was given to replace this now that Jesus is here. And the first thing we see is the Lord's Supper. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus sits down with his disciples to partake in the Passover. This was an old ordinance or ceremony, and he gives it new meaning. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So the old ceremony of Passover was given new meaning in the context of a new covenant, even on a timeline until his second coming. That that's what this ordinance is given for. Now, how do we know that this is not just something that he did with his disciples that one time, but wasn't maybe anything that he wanted us to do? We look at the New Testament church and we see the greater teaching of what Jesus said in the context of this. Paul is instructing the Corinthians in his first letter, and he rebukes them about how they are partaking in the Lord's Supper. He uses that phrase, Lord's Supper, in that passage. And, and he tells them, after saying what they're doing that doesn't work, that this is what it should look like. And he gives that to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And there's a clear expectation, both from Paul, as he spoke to the church, and in what he quotes Jesus as saying, that this is something that we are going to do. When it says, this do in remembrance of me, that's, that's the Greek. That's the present imperative active. It means continuous action, something that you do over and over again. Or so I've been told. Not Greek. But we also see, as often as you eat and drink of it, right? Until I come. He's given it to us. Repeat this 
here's the timeline. It is for you. It was instituted by Christ, and it was practiced by the church. We see the same thing with baptism. Now, when we think of baptism, we usually think of John the Baptist, right? He came first. It was a baptism of repentance to prepare people's hearts for Jesus. But within Jesus' ministry also, we see baptism. In John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we see this. Now, when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So it was part of their practice. Now, there's a lot happening there, right? Jesus and the Pharisees, we've got this balance of tension, and he's trying to keep it from coming to a head until the right time. And, uh, and specifically, Jesus' disciples are baptizing, but not Jesus. We assume because there were lots of divisions in the church over who baptized who, and you can only imagine where that would have gone if someone could say, oh, Jesus baptized me. All sorts of problems. But the point is, within his ministry, he taught his disciples when people come to follow, when they choose to follow Jesus, the response to that is baptism. It's something that Jesus was doing in his ministry. And it's certainly the pattern we see in the early church. Why? Because Jesus commanded it. You're familiar with Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. In the middle of that, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So, Greater context, again, lots of stuff he's saying about the power and what they're doing, but right in the middle of it, there's a command to baptize, and the New Testament church followed that. That was their pattern of belief when anybody turns to God. Uh, we're going to get to celebrate Pentecost, right, at the beginning of next month, and Peter preaches a sermon at Pentecost. People are cut to the quick, and they say, what do we do? And he answers them. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, he says, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. That was the response that he calls for when someone has come to Jesus. And it goes throughout the New Testament when Paul is writing letters. We read one earlier today when he's in Romans chapter 6. His expectation is, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We didn't say if you were baptized. There's an expectation. And that's what they did when when Paul was visited by Ananias, right, after his road to Damascus experience and he's blind and the scales fall off his eyes, you know what he does? He goes and gets baptized. When, when Philip is ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch and he believes and says, why should I not be baptized? That's what they do. They baptize. So it's a response, an obedient response to the teachings we see from Jesus. Baptism was instituted by Jesus and it was practiced by the early church. And in all of the New Testament, those are the two ceremonies or rites that we see consistently performed. So they are the two ceremonial practices that I would say are biblically non-optional for a body of believers. They should characterize every body of believers on this globe. Now, are they necessary for salvation? No. But as a church, are they part of obeying Jesus' teachings? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what he called us to do. And they're such precious gifts to us as we grow to understand them. They're an encouragement, a, a conduit, if you will, of God's grace for us that he's given to us to be a blessing to us in our journey with him. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, instituted by God, practiced by the church, non-optional. Okay, it's also significant at this point to note that, reason number two, these are the only ceremonial practices 
that we see commanded in the New Testament. So, so that means that a lot of other ceremonies or celebrations um, that have become traditions in various churches, right? They should be regarded as exactly that. They are church traditions among our various churches, and many of them are really good. I would say I like to celebrate Easter and Christmas, and, and when we get to celebrate Pentecost next month, that's a blessing to us. That's an opportunity. Take every opportunity you can to focus on God. But you have to be careful, particularly when you're dealing with fellow believers, in the context of these optional ceremonies or optional holidays, right? We get to have a lot of grace for each other in how we celebrate these. I, I remember the first, first year that I was married, my wife and I had to spend a year in Seattle on account of her school. So we found a church there, and it was a wonderful Bible-believing church, had great small groups. They ministered to us, great folks, but they were not part of the church tradition that we had grown up with. And come December, right, we're coming on the first Sunday of Advent, and we're excited to celebrate right, that anticipation of celebrating Advent. And they have the Advent calendars on the little flat surface up at the front, uh, candles, and, and I didn't know what I was looking at. There was like this big group of candles here, and then another group, and, then an, and they would light a bunch of them at once, and it was like the Bethlehem candles and the shepherd's candles and... What in the world, right? Give me a four candles and a wreath. One, two, three. The fifth one in the middle, and maybe you don't bring it out till Christmas, and that's okay, but it needs to be white, and there's three pink ones, and there's one purple one, and I don't remember which one it is, but it's got to be the right one. That's an advent calendar, right? That's an advent candle. That's how we sell it. We stopped at CVS on the way home and bought little votives and went to our little 545-square-foot apartment and found a flat surface and put them up there, and we lit those candles the right way back here, right? Because that was a meaningful tradition to us. And actually doing it in our home became a meaningful tradition for our family, starting with that year. But you know what we didn't do? We didn't go back to the church and say, this is how an anniversary is done, right? It wasn't commanded. Celebrating Christmas wasn't commanded in the New Testament. It's great. Do it. I love it too. I'm not making it on Christmas. But, but you got to understand, there are only two things, ceremonies in the New Testament, that we see instituted by Jesus and practiced by the church. And in everything else, grace and unity for the body of Christ. And, and we need to hit this. So grab your Bible again. This is in Romans chapter 14. Okay? So, so this is not just preaching what's not there. This is something they struggled with as well. And if you want to bookmark or highlight Romans 14, you're an American. It's probably a good one for you to read, right? We tend to have opinions. And we tend to think that our opinions are the right opinions about things. And, and we like to see people who have wrong opinions and fix them. And, and that's not the body of Christ. That's not what is to characterize us, okay? So this is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 14. We're on page 1127 of your pew Bible. Verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may aid anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats 
feet in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And he goes on to explain that the, the thing we're looking for is not causing each other to stumble. The thing I'm doing is I've got my focus on other people and what are where are they with this, and then let's not do it in a way that causes disunity within the body of Christ. That we are here to be a unified and to celebrate. So, so God has given us baptism and the Lord's Supper and a whole lot of freedom in other areas. And we are to live in that and to share his grace. All right, well, this should all lead us to then ask, why? Why did Jesus pick these two ordinances for a church? There was a whole host of things that were fulfilled at the coming of Christ, and there were these two that were instituted. What, is, what did he want for them? Why did he put them there? And, and we're going to look spe at specific reasons for each of these two ordinances over the course of the next two Sundays. Uh, but in general, that's what we're looking at today, in general, what, what are the ordinances here for? And this was answered by our catechism question. So if we look at the first reason, is that they are visible signs and seals that we are bound together as a community of faith by his death and resurrection. So it's something visible. That matters to us. I don't know if any of you have studied psychology or whatever, but you know, like it matters whether you've seen or not seen something or just heard about it. Those are two different experiences, and the God who made us gets that. So he gave us a visible sign or seal that we are bound together. Okay? So this is to be a unifying force as a community of faith. By what? By his death and resurrection. That it is to draw us together as we corporately focus on the thing that defines us, which is Jesus' death and resurrection. God wants that for us. He wants us to get that. And so he gave us an ordinance to help us get it. Have you ever taught something to a, a person or a group of people who were going to need it later when you weren't there? Either, I don't know, you guys do military training or if you're just a teacher in a classroom, right? If you have a group of people, you're like, boy, they need this. This is foundational. You don't just tell them, right? You give them a mnemonic device or a flashcard or a poster or something, right? You do more around that because you really want that to be the thing they get. The fact that Jesus gave us an ordinance around his death and resurrection tells us this is central. This is foundational. This is what I want you to keep coming back to. And it binds us together because we do it, not by ourselves, but together. So then as a group, we're not just knowing, right, and checking something off. We're knowing together. We're participating with each other. The second thing that our catechism response tells us is that by our use of these ordinances, the Holy Spirit more fully declares and seals the promises of the gospel to us. So by our use of them, by our obedience to what Christ is doing, that opens a door for the Holy Spirit to declare and seal the promises of the gospel in us. We, in faith, obey Christ, we participate, take part in the ordinance, and then the Holy Spirit draws us deeper and more fully into the truth of his gospel promises. Now, I know that sounds a little bit vague, but, but I want you to understand that there's something spiritual that is happening when we participate in these ordinances. It is more than a symbol. It's something that, that we're actually doing, and that doing produces a <laughs> right? I can't, can't quite put words on all of it, but I will tell you, there's a tendency sometimes, right, if we theologically 
find something false, right? And we rebel against that false teaching. Sometimes we pull so far away from it that we, we miss it to the other side. And, and we talked earlier about, right, the sacraments in the Catholic Church. And, and that in the Roman Catholic tradition, not all Catholic churches everywhere, but this is the Roman Catholic tradition of teaching, they would believe that, that it's actually part of a means to salvation, that it's making you more fit to receive the justification from Christ when you participate in this. They, they would believe in uh, transubstantiation, that when the priest blesses the bread and the wine, that it, it physically becomes the body and the blood of Christ. And we would say, well, no, it's in remembrance of, right? That's a symbol. But we can say that's a symbol so strongly that in our kind of modernist creeping that comes in, we think it's like it's all physical, that it's all just atoms, right, that we're doing. And it's a nice reminder, and it's not. We miss the beauty, the gravity, and the importance that Jesus put on this ceremony. It's a participation with God himself. And you'll notice those two directions, right? We have one that's pulling us together with each other and one that's pulling us together with God. Have we seen that pattern before? The greatest commandment, right? We're to love the Lord our God. And the second, we're to love our neighbors. He wants us to get it. It's a blessing for us because it draws us back. And I know for me personally, I, uh, I have a tendency to wander from the essential teaching of Christ towards like subpoints or other good things or whatever I happen to be, you know, struggling with or sorting through or whatever, you know, desire or just failure that I have reached. And I'll get really focused on that. And then, and then we'll participate in the Lord's Supper as a body of Christ. And there will be a time of quiet reflection. And then I will physically hold a representation of the body of Christ that was broken for me. And I'll physically hold a representation of the the blood of Christ that was sacrificed for me, and I will partake in those, and it re-centers me on what's really critical. And it lets the rest of that stuff just kind of wash away, and it puts my heart back where God wants my heart to be, because it's really hard for all those other voices to start talking in the presence of the body and blood of Christ. They get to leave, and we get to connect with our Savior. And, and that anchors me in that truth. And I, I actually find that baptism does that as well. I know it's not something that we repeat as individuals every month, but but those of you who were here when I gave my testimony know that when, in my early years of college, I struggled a lot with, with doubt, with uncertainty, trying to figure out, is God really there? How can I know? What is, and, and there was an extended period of time that I was wrestling with that, and God slowly reached through that and found me and and when I decided that I was going to stick with him, I was baptized in response to that decision. And I still struggle sometimes, but but I can look back on that baptism, and it anchors me in the choice that I died with him, and that I raised with him, and that it's not a question of if I'm going to follow him, it's a matter of how. And I'm so thankful that he gave me something physical that can't be taken away anchor those truths for my journey with him. My prayer for us as we study these ordinances individually over the course of the next two Sundays is just as we answer today, that we would truly be bound together as a community of faith through them and that the Holy Spirit would more fully declare the truth of the gospel in our hearts. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for a loving father and teacher that, that wanted us to understand. Thank you for the difference you made with Jesus, God, and for the, the change that brought and how we can follow you. And I ask that you would give us further insight into these gifts that you've given us over the next two weeks. Help us to participate in them, God, in ways that honor you and that draw us closer to each other and to your truth. Amen.